I wasn't a huge fan of like healing justice. I thought that was just like some, I don't know, pie in the sky, you know, kind of thing. I'm like, we have work to do. Nobody has time for this (laughs) yoga. Hi, I'm Puck Lowe, a filmmaker, researcher, and writer. You're listening to The Next World, a podcast about building movements. Every month, we'll celebrate and be in conversation with the work being done by poor people's movements, especially in the U.S. We want to highlight organizing led by women, queer people, and people of color who are pushing forward new models of systemic change. Today, we're excited to welcome journalist Sarah Lazar as our guest host. We'll talk about some of her recent reporting on the Green New Deal, and then we'll bring on education advocate Zakia Sankara-Jabbar, whose work on the criminalization of Black students takes us all the way back to preschool. But before we get started, I have a quick request. If you like this show, please subscribe, tell your friends, post about us on social media, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about our show at nessary.org, the website of National Economic and Social Rights Initiative, our show's sponsoring organization. Thank you so much. So, I'm thrilled to introduce our guest host, Sarah Lazar. Sarah is the web editor at In These Times. She's an independent journalist and has written for publications like The Intercept, The Nation, and Tom Dispatch. We're so glad to have you with us today, Sarah. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. To get us started, could you tell us about your reporting on the Green New Deal? Oh, sure. I'd love to. So the Green New Deal has obviously attracted a lot of attention and conversation and for a lot of people is really exciting in its scope because it's rooted in an understanding that to address the climate crisis, we can't just change one little thing here or there, but have to sort of transform um, the entire economy and really transform society and make big, deep changes. And these demands have come from social movements, you know, the call for a just transition. So you know, a transformation of the economy away from fossil fuels extraction that's rooted in good union jobs and make sure that no one is left behind, like really came from the labor movement in the 80s, but then also has been central to the demands of environmental justice organizations who have been calling for social transformation rooted in economic justice as a way to address the climate crisis. So, um, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez first called for a Green New Deal at the end of last year and then introduced a resolution formally along with uh, Senator Markey in February. And in these times, we've really been asking ourselves sort of how do we engage with these big political developments? What does it look like to sort of recognize that this is an exciting call for deep systemic change, while at the same time demanding the best possible Green New Deal. So being aspirational, having big demands, and making sure that frontlines, environmental justice organizations, 
groups like the Climate Justice Alliance, like the Indigenous Environmental Network, get a seat at that table. Because as we all know, it's, you know, movements that create radical, deep change, and that any lawmaker, no matter how great they seem, really has to be pushed. So I had a conversation with Kali Akuno of Cooperation Jackson back in December, and we had a lot of conversation looking at what was proposed in the Green New Deal at that point and what could be better. And his take, which I thought was a really smart one, is that this is an exciting moment, we should be positive, but we need to be honest about where the Green New Deal doesn't go far enough. And one of his really big concerns was that the Green New Deal not become a call for green capitalism. You know, one of the things that the initial Green New Deal called for was for the U.S. to sort of be a leader in new energy systems, clean energy, and that we use our leadership to create a global Green New Deal. That raises some key questions. For example, the U.S. has played such an outsized role driving the climate crisis that it would be incredibly predatory to turn around and sell the supposed solutions to those um, countries and places and peoples who have been most harmed by the crisis that the U.S. really played a lead role in driving. And so Kali Aquino was very, very focused on what does it look like to have an anti-colonial approach to a Green New Deal? What does it look like to center reparations? So instead of global commerce, what does it look like to say the U.S. owes a debt to the world and needs to approach the climate crisis from that lens. So those were some of the things we talked about. I appreciated that interview with Kali so much and how he explicitly named capitalism as the problem. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I really appreciated that too. Yeah, there's been so much focus on the domestic aspects of the Green New Deal, but any climate policy is by definition international because the climate crisis is international. And I feel that there's been a lot less focus on the international components and sort of how the Green New Deal does or doesn't sort of reinforce the global capitalism that really got us here. And I think that there are a lot of people who are really, really pushing and hoping that the Green New Deal at its heart have an anti-capitalist sentiment because capitalism is really what drives the crisis. For sure. And it, and it's so ironic, too, because precisely with things like climate change, climate change recognizes absolutely no borders. So right, requires us to think outside of those constraints. Yeah, Kali was really, really insistent on that. And there have been a lot of organizations who have tried to be very internationalist in how we sort of address the climate crisis. I know groups like Indigenous Environmental Network and Climate Justice Alliance have been doing a lot of international building, sort of trying to connect Indigenous struggles around the world and sort of play, build U.S. solidarity with, with those struggles. And yeah, there's a lot of effort to think really internationally. I have a ton of respect for the work that people are doing where they actually go to U.N. climate negotiations and make bold demands, I can imagine that's really challenging because industry has such a seat at those climate negotiations. And I'm 
grateful for the people's movements who sort of target those gatherings particularly. I wanted to get back to what you had mentioned earlier about reparations. I'm curious how that came up in the conversation and what material manifestations of that would look like in the context of a Green New Deal. So it came up in the conversation because I asked Kali what the ideal global climate policy would look like. And I asked him about the framework of reparations. I was curious about reparations because I've done organizing in the anti-war movement and also done some journalists covering the anti-war movement. And the call for reparations for people in Iraq and Afghanistan is still very central to some organizations organizing ethos groups like About Faith Veterans Against War, which used to be called Iraq Veterans Against the War. And, you know, Kali's response is that reparations really has to be key. And it has to be introduced at several levels of the conversation. So you have to talk about financial compensation, so material relief. You have to talk in terms of decolonization, which means returning lands back to indigenous and colonized people who have been subjected to, you know, the United States and domination by Western Europe for much of the past 500 years. So that, you know, Kali was really emphasizing that. And you have to roll back the market-based capitalist extractive system. Kali actually framed that as part of reparations. You know, step one is stop doing harm. So, Sarah, I know you're based in Chicago, which is the home of so many amazing organizing initiatives, including the campaign for police reparations. I was wondering if you could talk about that and some of the related transformative justice work that activists like Miriam Kaba have been doing. Yeah, absolutely. So Chicago has huge movements demanding divestment from the Chicago Police Department, the city's most violent institution, and investing in basic community needs, including mental health care clinics. Rahm Emanuel shut down half of the city's mental health care clinics, as well as schools. Rahm Emanuel oversaw the uh, greatest historic school closures. And there are huge movements. It's a really big problem in Chicago because there are horrific legacies in the city of um, racist police violence. John Burge was a former police commander who basically oversaw the torture by white police officers of more than 100 black men in the 70s and 80s and leading up to 1991. And for a long time, there have been community demands for not only a public reckoning of the harm done, but actual reparations. And a few years ago, thanks to the long-term work of Chicago organizers, we saw landmark reparations legislation passed. It included torture memorial. It included the mandate that the history of Chicago police torture be taught in U.S. or in Chicago schools. Now that the reparations are being implemented, there's still work to be done and the fight is far from over. One thing we've seen is significant opposition from the police union here in Chicago against 
the school portions of the reparations legislation. So they've been really opposed to coming clean in Chicago schools, teaching about the history of police torture. And then also there are actually people who were tortured in a confession under the watch of John Burge who are still in prison. So there are ongoing fights to free those people from prison. There are many, many inspiring campaigns in Chicago that relate to transformative justice demands. I'll mention one of them. The No Cop Academy campaign is a Chicago-based campaign led by young Black people in Chicago. The group Asada's Daughters is playing a really big role in the campaign. It emerged in opposition to a proposed $95 million police academy proposed by Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Now that price tag is actually higher, but the campaign has demanded from day one that we don't want more investment in police. Training is not going to fix the problem of deep racism in the police department. What we need is to divest from police to meet basic community needs. And so there's been this incredible campaign that has been treated very, very disrespectfully from day one. There have been numerous instances where members of the public who are involved in No Cop Academy campaign have not been allowed to come into public city meetings to make their positions known. But nonetheless, the No Cop Academy campaign has been very persistent, come back again, again, and again, stage creative direct actions, train takeovers, protests, they researched, they created a really amazing report about community opposition to the COP Academy. And through that hard work, they have actually put the No COP Academy campaign center stage in the city. It was actually a central issue in the last mayoral race after Rahm Emanuel announced that he wouldn't be seeking a third term, arguably, I think, because of community opposition from groups like No COP Academy. Yeah, and it was really amazing to see the demand for No Cop Academy become central to political discourse in Chicago. And it's 100% due to the tenacity of young Black people leading that campaign. Thank you so much for that reporting, Sarah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of amazing organizing happening in Chicago, and I still have a lot to learn about it, but I love getting the opportunity to talk about it. Speaking of which, I know there is amazing transformative justice organizing happening in Dayton, Ohio, that has some similarities with what's going on in Chicago, particularly around sort of the basic right for schooling and sort of addressing systemic injustices in the school system. So this might be a good opportunity to bring in Zakia Sankara Jabbar. Our guest today is Zakia Sankara Jabbar, um, a parent who has taken on the preschool to prison pipeline. She works with the Dignity in Schools campaign and co-founded Racial Justice Now in Dayton, Ohio. You can read her latest writing in a new book, Lift Us Up, Don't Push Us Out, Voices from the Front Lines of the Education Justice Movement. Welcome to the show, Zakia. We're so glad to have you. Thank you very much. I am happy to be here and happy to share. Could you tell us something about your work and how you got started on this issue? 
Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, thanks again for the opportunity to share. You know, as you mentioned, I co-founded uh, Racial Justice Now, which is a community organizing uh, organization based in Dayton, Ohio, the statewide organizing, uh, particularly at the intersection of racial justice and education justice. And I came into that work really organically uh, out of my own experience. At the time, uh, as a parent of a three-year-old, uh, my son uh, was attending preschool where he was beginning to be identified sort of as a problem child. I was getting calls to pick him up very frequently. And then finally, you know, just through all of that experience, I began to just question the school and I developed a broader analysis when I began to talk to other parents, particularly other parents of color, Black women in particular, and realize that it wasn't just about me or my son. It was definitely more of a systemic issue and was happening to a lot of the parents there, particularly uh, parents of uh, Black children. And so I uh, began organizing, literally, out of that experience. That experience really politicized me around education. Like I mentioned, it it sparked a a broader analysis. I began to read and research and obviously, you know, just went down a complete rabbit hole of, like, education history in this country and particularly how, you know, education uh, impacted uh, Black people and in particular, and how we've been kept away systemically through policies and practices throughout American history, wasn't even given access, even allowed to read during enslavement. And so I, you know, began to study that and studied all of the patterns throughout history and how education has worked or not worked out for a lot of us. And so we began to organize, doing advocacy, policy, and also leadership development of our base, which is mostly working class folks of color. And again, as I mentioned, black women in particular. And that work has been going on now uh, seven years. So I just wanted to back up a bit because, I mean, I want this to sink in for people. We're talking about preschool. (laughs) Like how old was your son when you first started getting these calls? Yeah, he was only three. And that's on top of an experience where I had shifted him from another uh, center that he was in that he was loved, cared for. He had never had an experience like that. And one of the reasons I did that is because this particular preschool setting, child care facility was on the campus of the university I was attending at the time. And they had done this wonderful marketing campaign about it being a wonderful place, you know, for young people. It's a sort of a great head start right into kindergarten. And the name of the preschool is called Mini University. And so, you know, I just thought, wow, you know, I want my child to have access to this great education. And so I went after that opportunity, you know, as parents, you always want your children to have access to, you know, better things than you did, you know, as a child. I did not attend preschool as a young child. So, I wanted to make sure he had a great educational start in life. Education is something that's very important to me. It's very important to my family. And so I began to actually encounter issues, even trying to enroll him in the process. Sort of these race and class issues really, really uh, surfaced pretty early on. Um, And what I mean by that is at the time, although I was working and although I was a full-time student, I also still qualified for a program called the Title 20. Uh, Title 20 is a federal subsidy that supports paying for uh, subsidizing child care for people who are either working or attending school. 
And so I came to the facility sort of with that in hand, um, because at that time I could not afford the price tag uh, for childcare or for preschool for a three-year-old, which was hovering around seven or $800 a month, which is, you know, pretty steep and still pretty steep for a lot of families. How I was able to, you know, get him in is because this, as I mentioned earlier, was a childcare setting on the campus of the university I was attending. And so apparently through an MOU process, that preschool provider agreed to allow a certain number of slots for students, which makes sense, right? And so that also meant that, right, students probably can't pay full price. Uh, And so many of us also had subsidy uh, programs. And so I just remember, you know, even dealing with the receptionist at that time, you know, she was not very pleasant, very rude, actually. And she told me in, you know, very matter of fact, sort of really terse terms, there's a waiting list. You know, we don't take um, people who, you know, have this, you know, subsidy or whatever. And I was just like, okay. When you're in poverty, you're used to being treated less than human, honestly. Um, You're really, you know, used to being treated pretty badly. And so I just kind of took that with a grain of salt. I knew I was working. I knew I was in school to make myself better and hopefully not to have to qualify for programs like that in the future. So I said, you know, whatever, I'm just going to continue to be consistent and persistent to get my kid into this program. So that's exactly what I did. I sort of looked over her uh, at that time and I continued to call at least once a week. And I finally, you know, got him into the program. But literally, you know, once he, you know, was in, it just was never, ever a good experience for us. And so, like I mentioned, you know, that led to this, you know, much broader analysis. The organizing began initially almost immediately And, you know, we began to push for policy changes at the local and the state level. And what were these behaviors that your son was criminalized for? What does this look like coming from a three-year-old? Yeah, so that's actually a great question. So for him, it was things like refusing to transition. I actually had to ask them what they meant when they said that. Um, And temper tantrums, right, which is actually normal childhood behavior for a three or four-year-old. So those are the things that they complained about. It wasn't anything egregious that would make you think, you know, maybe this child, you know, has some kind of disability that we need to take a look at. Although they suggested that, but they suggested that for things that were perfectly normal, which were the things that I pushed back on them about. And and that led, you know, to to him ultimately being removed from the school uh, because I just did not cooperate with pathologizing my yeah. style. But in terms of your other uh, question, as far as the rate of suspensions and expulsions for students in Ohio, which is over 53%, the latest data that I was looking at, it sort of hovers, it definitely hovers over 50%, literally like all the time. But with some of these bills, because we also worked with House Bill 410 in 2016, which decriminalized truancy. So there was a step process that we used, particularly around school climate and culture uh, in the state of Ohio to get sort of all of these different bills passed where we're not criminalizing parents for truancy. We're looking at wraparound supports and sort of things. That was in 2016 with House Bill 410. And so we, again, worked in a collaborative effort to get that done. But in terms of your questions, as far as some of the behaviors that we saw, because also what Racial Justice Now did, and I can't take full credit for it, I have to give my co-founder, Professor Vernelia Randall, who is emeritus professor of law at the University of Dayton School of Law. She put together our 2014 and 2016 statewide school discipline report card. 
And so one of the things that we found when we did all the data mining and looked at what young people were actually being suspended for, it was similar to other parts of the country. So in California, they call it willful defiance. It's sort of that catch-all, right? That very subjective sort of catch-all that we are seeing young people get caught up in, particularly students of color uh, being kicked out of schools. And so in Ohio, it was called disruptive behavior. And so that, again, that's very sort of subjective. Young people, it could be from sort of school uniform violations, from talking back. I mean, all kinds of different things where young people were literally being kicked out of the school community and environment for disruption. So that was the number one. The other thing that we saw that young people were continually being suspended for was sort of like smoking or those kinds of issues and things like that. So those are all things that we felt could certainly be handled in a way that did not completely kick the young people out of school. So we obviously, you know, advocated for things like restorative practices and restorative justice, advocated for that to be implemented with fidelity. PBIS is something that has been really huge. We haven't seen that that has done a lot, unfortunately, with regard to the racial disparity. So from our perspective, uh, when I was the leader of Racial Justice Now, we pushed for the Ohio Civil Rights Commission to have purview and authority for parents if they wanted to file a complaint based on racial uh, disproportionate impact. Unfortunately, of course, we did not get that as a part of the bill, but that was something that we advocated for because even with um, sort of these remedies and we're happy about them, we still have not gotten to the point where we're dealing with that level of racial disparity that I described in the numbers. I love how your personal experience led you to be part of this national movement and to connect these dots. Uh, Could you tell us more about the Dignity in Schools campaign that you're running? Yes. So uh, Dignity in Schools campaign, I am the national field organizer. Uh, Dignity in Schools is the largest organization, education justice organization, focused on ending the preschool to prison pipeline. We have 115 members across 26 states uh, in the United States, including the District of Columbia. The vast majority of our membership is base building. And what we mean by base building groups are groups that are led by the folks who are directly impacted by these different issues that we're discussing. So that's parents and youth. We also have public policy organizations like ACLU who are members, and we absolutely also have teachers that are a part of our organization. Teachers Unite is one of our members as well, uh, based in New York City. Um, so we're basically a, this huge collaboration of folks working across the country, working across those 26 states at the state and local level, pushing to end the school to prison pipeline. Part of my role as the national field organizer is to support those organizations, to give capacity building support to those organizations, help with campaign development. Lots of times I'm directly in the communities with folks at their request, if they need support with a particular action, if they need particular support around sort of legislative education advocacy that we do Another large part of our work is working with our federal partner, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, and we do something called Days at the Capitol. 
And that's something where we bring together a majority of our members from different parts of the country to here in Washington, D.C., to help them meet with their representatives here. And we usually also meet with the U.S. Department of Education Office of Civil Rights and do a lot of work on federal advocacy. That work actually led, unfortunately, was recently rescinded to a policy in the Obama administration called the federal guidance, um, you know, on school discipline and safety. And so what that policy from the Obama administration did was basically gave guidance to states and uh, state education agencies and local education agencies about how they should be making sure that the civil rights protections are in place uh, for students when it came to administering school discipline. Unfortunately, the Trump administration in December rescinded that guidance, but we know that the law is still the law. And so we recently launched a campaign that says just that the law is still the law, giving tools uh, still to our members to say, hey, you can still advocate for these changes. Although the Trump administration rescinded this guidance, the law is still the law. Civil rights protections are still the law of the land. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we are doing this work unapologetically pushing, again, for the end of regular presence of police in schools through our Counselors Not Cops campaign. Yeah, it's a lot. And I have the pleasure of working with so many amazing people across the country uh, pushing to have equitable education edu- for equitable uh, access to education for every student and family member. Zakia, earlier you mentioned that you organized alongside some parents who actually lost their jobs because their children were suspended so frequently. Um, And that really stuck out to me. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how widespread that problem is and sort of the ripple effects of suspension and then also how that connects to anti-truancy laws, which actually go a step further by criminalizing parents. So that was actually a a huge part of, you know, how we were able to get the the decriminalizing bill of truancy in Ohio in 2016 is because we we use those stories um, and we showed actually how widespread it is, you know, across the state or as we call the parents at the margin, but really invisible parents, the parents that a lot of people blame for education's failures. Um, We're talking about parents, you know, who are working at the margins, barely, you know, sort of keeping things together economically, living in communities where there is not a supportive ecosystem, where they don't even have access to good food and grocery stores, right? Dayton's West Side is considered a food desert. So we're talking about families who are living in communities that are often, unfortunately, also riddled with gun violence because of some of these sort of systemic issues that that impacts education, impacts housing, you know, impacts, you know, jobs. All of these different things come together to be a recipe, unfortunately, for disaster for many of the communities that we work in. Uh, and even, you know, not just even in Ohio, but of course, you know, in my role as DSC, I see this all over the country, you know, from our members in other parts of the Midwest, of course, members on the West Coast, and certainly our members in the Delta uh, in Mississippi. So it's definitely widespread. I think that unfortunately, the movement has been slow to really see the parents, right, that we're, that I'm describing, and see them also as, as, as survivors of this in, entire uh, preschool to prison pipeline and how 
this particular pipeline impacts them uh, in various ways. And it does cause a ripple effect when you talk about losing your job. That also means that some parents were at risk of also losing their housing because if they didn't have their job, you know, they're not able to pay the bills, right? Some of our parents frequently also were very vulnerable to also having certain utilities cut off because, you know, in a community like Dayton, once uh, the manufacturing industry picked up and left, that really left the vast majority of jobs being in the service industry. So a lot of our parents are either working in the service industry or they're working sort of these back-breaking jobs where they're not getting paid very much, but they're working like home health care, you know, they can have access, you know, to jobs like that. Or then there's these highly skilled jobs where if they don't have sort of a degree or an advanced degree, then they're sort of kept out of sort of those high-end kind of jobs. So that, that's sort of the mixture of what it looks like for many of the folks in the Midwest and particularly the base of parents that I work alongside in Dayton. I have one question left for you, Zakia, which... It- it's just so deep what you said. I I feel like I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on how that kind of level of criminalization would really undermine a person's confidence in being a parent and what that means at the individual and the community level to be told through all these different ways that you aren't a fit parent, that your child is deficient and has these behavior problems because they act like a regular three-year-old like it's just it's so intense to imagine how many structural levels are giving you this information in so many different ways just for parenting right uh and i think that actually is more pronounced for poor parents poor working class parents and also parents of color um you're absolutely right And that was actually one of the reasons that we learned sort of in the midst of the organizing that we were doing we have to bring in a healing justice approach. And I remember, you know, just for me personally, I wasn't a huge fan of like healing justice. I thought that was just like some, I don't know, pie in the sky, you know, kind of thing. I'm like, we have work to do. Nobody has time for this (laughs) yoga. No one has time for this But I, you know, you're right. I mean, when you are working with folks who don't even have their basic needs met, Right. Thankfully, that was never really the case for me. But a lot of the folks that I organize with and, and continue to have relationships with, it's it's not an anomaly. I mean, it's it's invisible sort of in the media outside of blaming bad parents. But the stories of actual parents, right, of how marginalized just economically, you know, we can see it in the numbers, of course, when we start looking at how gentrification and housing policies are impacting these same communities, right? We can we can see it in different things, but it shows up very differently when you have close uh, relationships and when you're actually working in these communities. And so we partnered with the Community Healing Network, and we partnered with the Association of Black Psychologists and implemented this healing justice model called Emotional Emancipation Healing Circles. And basically that approach 
was designed, you know, specifically uh, for families who are descendants of colonialism, right? So we're looking at this thing from a historical perspective because we have, like I mentioned at the very beginning, we have to connect the dots on these things. These things have a history and they're, they're all connected. They look at uh, things like epigenetics and how trauma throughout the centuries continues to impact people today. And we began to implement that uh, working with Dr. Cheryl Grills out of Loyola uh, University in LA. And Enola Aird, who is actually an attorney, but the founder of the Community Healing Network and said, you know, we have to begin to train regular people, sort of lay people in the communities on how to run an emotional emancipation circle and how you can heal yourself even in the midst of ongoing trauma. To me, that was a radical idea because I was just like, Mm. there is no actual healing if there is this constant sort of infliction of trauma and pain throughout communities. Some of our parents are, are... also, you know, some of their children were, were victims of, of police brutality and police violence. And so you have this sort of mixture of all of these different systems, you know, having a negative impact on the families that you're trying to organize. And it was almost paralyzing to even, you know, get folks to kind of show up for different meetings, to get folks to kind of engage in different things. And so I said, we have to I'm not going to blame people, right? Because I even, I, you know, for me, I had a support system. So even that was a privilege, right? So I had someone, you know, and I actually had a stable job with a union that I sort of protected. I didn't have to worry about losing my job because like I said, thankfully I had a job and they had a union and there was some security for me. But for a lot of the folks that I was organized, that just was not the case. There was no union protections. If you're a waitress and you don't show up for two or three days, your job is gone, right? So that that's something that thankfully we were able to pull off and those circles are continuing to happen and you can see the difference in even bringing an approach like that and helping people to really unpack the trauma that they've experienced throughout their lives because many of the parents too were also students in these same schools who were inflicting these problems like in the 70s and 80s so you know it's it's a continuum unfortunately of harm in a lot of communities of color especially those who are at the margin so that's a great question and and like i said that's something that we're continuing uh to work through through that emotional emancipation healing model that's amazing thank you so much um how can people follow and support your work zakia well, definitely follow the Dignity in Schools campaign. You can reach us at uh, dignityinschools.org. If you want to continue to support the work of Racial Justice Now based in Ohio, you absolutely can. My partner runs that organization now. He is the leader. Just also uh, opened up a branch here in the DMV. So there is the Racial Justice Now DMV chapter. Uh, and you can reach them at rjndmv.org. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. To close out today's show, here's our minute of resistance. Check out this poem, To All the Little Black Girls with Big Names, by Chicondria Icon Sibley. 
Whenever someone asks me the meaning of my name, I usually never have an answer. I remember looking for it once in a shopping mall kiosk where the meanings of names are engraved into keepsakes, thinking all the while the chances of me finding mine would be like the odds of winning the sweepstakes. Tired of people mispronouncing it, I shortened it to Khan, but they still got it wrong. Yep, confusing me with the lady who once sang that song, tell me something good, and tell them something I feel I should so I correct them. It's pronounced Sha-Khan-Dri-A. No silent letters, no accents, preferably pronounced with the drowl of a southern accent. I remember that once was a day when I wished my mother would have stuck to something simple and pretty and majestic like Tiffany or maybe even Alexis, but my fate was sealed by signatures on my birth certificate, granting me the right to forever bear the shame of having been given a ghetto-ass name, so this here poem is for all the little black girls with big names, for the Shahs and Ishas, the Anas and Equas who are told never to write their names on applications, because we live in a nation where your name can tell someone your race or even your social status because they think only dumb ghetto folk overuse the alphabet. They chalk it up to illiteracy, never creativity or maybe even history and I wonder if those who assume would ever stop to think that maybe transatlantic submerged native tongues have re-emerged in the form of ghetto monikers. Like my little cousin whose name is Tanisha sounds a lot like Tanache, a name from the Shona tribe meaning God is with us. Or my friend Lakisha whose name sounds a lot like the Bantu name Wakisa or maybe like me. My mother knew that I would be a fighter, so she named me Shikandria, which sounds a lot like Shaka, the great Zulu warrior. See, this here poem is for every daughter who ever became a professional only to shorten her name to a letter and a period just so phone calls could be returned or higher pay earned, because we all know, don't nobody want an Isha or an equal to operate on them. But you see, a book can't be judged by its cover nor its title, and the story beneath your name can't be contained beneath the tide, so sisters, let them rise and take the rightful places on your app applications and business cards, desk placards and uniforms until one day ghetto ass names become the norm but for right now we're special you see and there ain't another girl in the world with a name like you or me so go forth and rep proudly for all the ghetto named girls and if someone happens to mispronounce your name make sure you give the neck a swirl look them dead in the eye and correct them it's pronounced uh. say it right or don't say it at all and that's our show for today Thank you for listening to The Next World. I'm Puck Lowe. You can find out more about my work at PuckLow.com. Sarah, where can people find out about you? You can check out In These Times. Our website is InTheseTimes.com. And um, we invite you to be a subscriber to the print magazine. Thank you to Kita P for providing the tunes for this episode. You can follow her at Kita P on Twitter. You can read more in-depth on many of the issues we talked about today, like the Green New Deal and school-to-prison pipeline, on the Nestry website, nesri.org. And thank you again so much, Sarah. Thank you so much. We'll be back with another episode of The Next World next month. Until then, please subscribe and tell all your friends, and post reviews wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye for now, and keep building. Keep building.